Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Warren Hoffman, author of The Great White Way, Race and the Broadway Musical, out in a new edition. Warren, welcome to the program. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here. Could you start off by giving us a little bit of your background and how you became interested in the Broadway musical? Uh, I feel like it's built into who I am. My, my parents took me and my sister to see uh, 42nd Street on the national tour when I was, I don't know, eight or nine. And I was hooked from that very moment. And in the years after that, you know, we would see various shows. But uh, yeah, I would listen to cast albums growing up and, and watch uh, movie musicals. And it's, it's, a love, it's a love affair that never went away. Yeah. Um, at what point did you start to realize that musicals were maybe not as uh, as innocent as you believed they, or maybe suspected they were when you were a, a, a small child? You know, I, I I think there are probably parts always along the way that you always maybe suspect a, a, a little bit of, of, of that. But it, it probably was during my, my training uh, as a grad student in uh, literature and culture at UC Santa Cruz when I was at this point in my life where, you know, I was being taught to think critically about everything, uh, essentially in the world, uh, mainly from a textual standpoint, but it, it really gave me a new set of lenses to look at things. And uh, it really was at that moment that I had a new toolbox to, to look at things like pop culture that I think uh, I and many others had really looked at in a critical way before. Uh, one of the things you write, you write in the book is that the history of the American musical is the history of white identity in the United States. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's, uh, in many ways, that's sort of a, a grounding thesis of the book. And I, in, in explaining or explaining that line, I should really be clear to say that that is not to overlook the the many contributions and shows by uh, artists of color in the history of the American musical. Some people have been, uh, were quick to, to note saying, but but what about this show or that show? Uh, uh, naming everything from, I don't know, Pearly to The Wiz. And I said, definitely, those shows are, are very much part of the American musical canon. But when we really take a step back and look broadly at, at the shows that I think people... Um, mainly identify with Broadway that seem to be these uh, major watershed moments. To me, they really are about uh, race and white identity, the ways in which uh, white creators uh, see the world, construct the world, uh, involving characters that are mainly white. Um, And again, this is with all the complexities about even though that many of the creators might have come from Jewish American backgrounds or other ethnic backgrounds, the musical became a way for these individuals to assimilate into a larger white mainstream. So even though they might have not been part of, let's say, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon heritage, it was all of this is still contributed to the ways in which whiteness itself has developed and changed and, and gone through all these permutations over the course of the 20th century and then now into the 21st century. Um, I, I actually, that reminds me of a story. I have a friend whose grandfather was from the Philippines and he listens almost exclusively to Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals <laughs> because I guess he feels like that is like the kind of quintessential American thing. And he wanted to feel like he really understood American culture. So so he uh, he, he plowed through all, I don't know, 30 something of those. <laughs> well, you know, just real quick, it's 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 important to remember it's because it's, it's just not this way today. But, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, really with. Uh, folks like Rodgers and Hammerstein, but even a little bit 
uh, even a little bit before, um, that the musicals were the, the pop culture of the day that everybody listened to, or again, less mainly white folks were listening to. But this was this was the music that was on the radio um, that people were listening to uh, in their homes by buying albums. So it's not surprising to hear that that other folks from all around the world were were, were listening to this and growing up on it because a, a lot of people were. It, it was part of their childhood identities growing up. It wasn't sort of considered a niche interest in the way maybe it is today. Very much so. And that niche interest is both because of the way that music has changed, where back in the 20th century, at this at that mid-century moment, show music, Broadway music, was popular music, and it no longer is for the most part. If anything, the opposite is happening. We're now taking pop music and turning it into Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that the, the rising expense of Broadway uh, shows has made it cost prohibitive for many people to even see a single show a year, let alone many. It was not uncommon in the middle of the 20th century for, especially if you were living in the New York area, to see many, most shows that were coming out. Tickets could have just been a, you know, a few dollars in some cases, and now they're easily 150 bucks a show. Yeah, I'm a playwright, and I I see maybe you know three or four Broadway musicals a year just because they're they're too expensive to see otherwise. Um, this is a new edition of a book that originally came out in 2014, I believe. What made you want to revisit the book in a new edition? Uh, there, there are a variety of reasons. Uh, one was that I had the really good fortune that uh, the first edition actually sold out, which doesn't always happen with <laughs> with books. So I felt really like blessed and lucky. And, and that was because the book really found an audience, uh, not just with scholars or academics or in classrooms, but really just fans of the Broadway musical were picking up this book and reading it and, and really enjoying it and finding new ways for, th- for them to look at shows. And that was, re- that was particularly rewarding. And I really wrote it with, with that audience in mind. I wanted, you know, just the, the average Broadway musical theater lover off the street to read this book. But the other thing that was that happened was um, just, you know, a year after the book came out, Hamilton happened. And all the time people kept asking me, well, well, what do you think of Hamilton and how does it fit into your book and all that? And when it came time to, when I, when I approached the press about uh, maybe bringing the book, uh, it didn't go out of print. They were just sort of printing it on demand, but doing like a really a full new edition. It really was a great uh, moment for, for me to bring the book. Uh, it more or less ends at the end of the 20th century with a few exceptions in the first edition to really, really bring it up to the present day. So I was able to talk about Hamilton but also the Book of Mormon, which is really another really big show uh, of the 21st century. Uh, ben Brantley said something like, you know, it's like the greatest musical comedy of the, you know, the, the 21st century. Um, but that's a show that, again, really has a lot to say and do with race and, and, and white identity, even though on the surface or at a quick glance, it might not feel like that. Yeah, my my mother lives in Phoenix, and she occasionally sees the touring uh, Broadway productions that come through there. And she saw Book of Mormon, and I asked her what she thought of it. And the first thing she said was, it was really racist. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, and my mother is, you know, she's a a very intelligent person, but she's by no means a a kind of theater insider. So, I mean, if something, if if the fact that this show is very racist is so apparent to uh, to many people who watch it, how how did this show kind of get away with it for so long? How did how did it kind of get a pass in the theater community? You know, it, it's it's interesting to hear that your mother had that response because I actually think that for the most part is not the typical response to the Book of Mormon. Because here's here's how that show works to answer answer your question. Um, it gets away with it because the the creators, uh, uh, Trey Parker, Matt Stone, and and, and uh, Robert Lopez, um, but the the first two, you know, they're the creators of South Park, and they've been doing this thing with South Park, which I will admit I'm a huge fan of for many years. Which is it's sort of this um, you know take no prisoners uh, uh, approach that like nobody is safe from from ridicule or or, or humor, and so in the Book of Mormon. You know, there are these various stereotyped, even racist portrayals of these African villagers, but 
my sense is, and it's not just my sense, it's what they've sort of said in a variety of interviews is that, you know, we're poking fun at everybody and, and we're poking fun at the white missionaries too. So if we poke fun at them, you can't say we're racist because everybody is the target uh, of humor. And, uh, you know, there is, there, you, that gets you so far, but not all the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and uh, John Lahr is one of the critics who you cite being kind of being skeptical of that and saying, eh, "There's there's some moments that are pretty undeniably racist." It, definitely, and um, you know, look, there are some things about. I I, I saw the show early on, and uh, you know, there are some things about the show that are very uh, funny, um, and the and the white missionaries definitely get uh, are. Are part of the send up, uh, which is good, um, and I and I really do love the all the parody stuff that they do with Rodgers and Hammerstein, especially things like uh, the the sort of ballet based on uh, from uh, the King and I that they do in Act Two. I mean, I do find a lot of that really really funny, but they do draw the African villagers with such broad strokes, um, much much less so uh which much less detail than than the white characters that it's 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 really glaring and they even talk about all this research they did into mormons and they didn't seem to do at least or at least talk about any significant research that they did until let's say i don't know africa (laughs) and it doesn't even really seem to matter what african country they've chosen it's sort of the poverty stricken aids ridden warlord uh dominated generic african country right I mean, they, I think they name a certain country, but it doesn't matter. They, so it takes place in Uganda, but it's yeah. it's this made-up Uganda that doesn't, it's so over the top. And I can't remember, if, I think it was Trey Parker who said this in an interview, it's in, it's in the book. I mean, outright says that, like he said, we could have basically picked just any place that was, you know, a third world poverty stricken country. It didn't really matter. And when you say something like that, it just, it just, it, it makes really clear that like, all of those those countries that those we I won't I won't say it, but all of those countries right. that, that Trump said, if we remember a few years ago, that like we don't want people, you know, you know, you know, uh, immigrating from uh, to to our country. Those are it's those types of countries. Um, so the other show that you write about in the the new chapter is Hamilton, which it certainly has been a controversial show since its beginning. Uh, I mean, obviously it's a it's a gigantic mega hit musical, you know, on a scale we haven't seen probably since Rent. Uh, but there's always been people who who've said, you know, ha- casting slave owners and and colonists with actors of color. Uh, isn't quite the revolutionary gesture you might think it is. So kind of, I know that people have asked you this many, many times. I'm just going to ask you it one more time. How does Hamilton fit into your overall argument with this book? You know, it, it, it's interesting. It, it, it's actually not as an obvious question as, as, as you or other people might think, you know, sometimes people think, say that, Oh, of course, Hamilton is a show about race because it features uh, actors of color in all of these major roles uh, that would typically would not be cast with actors of color. And that's true to some extent. Um, but first off, I think that that really, uh, it, it, it falls into the trap of, of saying that a show is really only about race when uh, there are either characters of color or actors of color on the stage. And it definitely goes beyond that because a lot of what I talk about in this book is how like a lot of shows in which no people of color show up actually are also about race. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's that that's happening. Um, but yes, there is this, there is this thing that Hamilton does, which is it really just sort of elides and skips over the the more problematic aspects of of the founding fathers again mainly the fact that that most of them were slave owners uh they you know jefferson and hamilton is really meant to sort of stand in uh uh, as sort of like you know the evil founding father because he's you know the slave owner and even though the, the number like washington was as well and i don't think the show talks about that at all Mm mm-hmm 
Um, one thing that I have been bothered by about, I guess, less Hamilton than the reception to Hamilton is that for a lot of white theater goers, it's become the exception to their general rule that hip hop is trash. Like they'll say, <laughs> I don't listen to rap except I love I love Hamilton. And it's like, well, if you like Hamilton, there's probably some other rap you would like, like whether it's, you know, most deaf or, or uh, you know, Black Star or something like it's not like it's. I, it, it sort of seems to uh, perpetuate this idea that, you know, hip hop isn't an art form unless it's elevated by being the story of this white founding father. It's it's definitely that. It's also that the, and I, I will be very honest, I, I, do, I don't know enough about hip hop or rap because that's, I don't listen to it typically. So I, I but my sense is that like in the Heights, um, the, the form of, of hip hop and rap in the show is Lin-Manuel Miranda, hip hop and rap, by which I mean, it's also very much inflected by traditional Broadway musicals. Right. Um, and he's, and he's said that. And so there it's, it's, there's a lot that goes through it that there's a lot of there's still a lot of melody and things it's it's not just it's 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 not just i would say like pure rap or hip-hop um Mm -hmm. there's a lot mixed into it um i heard oscar eustace talk about hamilton once and somebody asked him why he thought hamilton was such a hit and he just said oh it's because it's a story about america's founding that basically uh doesn't discuss slavery <laughs> like it's a way that you can feel it's a way you can, he said it more eloquently than that because he's oscar eustace but he said something about basically it's you know it's a story that makes you feel good about america while also acknowledging that slavery is evil right it's 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 not the jefferson story it's not the washington story it's the story of one of the few founding fathers who wasn't a slave owner alexander hamilton well well yes and no there well so hamilton might not have been a slave owner but his wife's family was um which is the show does not talk about but actually more than that there's something else about hamilton which to me makes it very american in a whole lot of ways but also relates to race and that is to me one of the overarching themes about this show is uh, it's it, it's really very uh, very typical that it's the it's the musical of the american dream mm-hmm. uh you know it's about what what is you know hamilton's talking about you know you know, it's about taking your shot right if you work hard like hamilton you too can have your place in history um and 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 can be a success and that's the you know prototypical story on which this country is based and it's why you know, there were a lot of uh, a lot of pres- a lot of political folks went to see this show, both Democrats and Republicans. Um, and I think it was the show in which you know that both Dick Cheney and Obama really liked. And in part, I think it's because you know it, it lives in this sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps ideology. But what people don't always realize is that that there's a lot of there's a lot of racial overtones and, and systemic racism built into that. It assumes that everybody has an equal chance in America. And especially as I think we saw really coming out of a lot of the protests this summer where where systemic racism, I think was for the first time, maybe just in a, at least in a long time, really made transparent to a lot of the this country and saying that, yeah, people of color just do not have the same opportunities as everybody else. And and Hamilton doesn't doesn't ad- address that. Something else that you talk about in the book is how Hamilton sort of uh, conflates being an immigrant with being a colonizer, right? That Hamilton says, you know, immigrants, we get the job done. Whereas Hamilton wouldn't have been understood as an immigrant. He would have just been understood as a British citizen who was born in one part of the British Empire and moved to another part of the British Empire. Exactly that. Plus the fact that it also conflates the fact that you have a uh, Actors of color, um, uh, particularly uh, black actors, saying something like that in which their own ancestors, for the most part, would have been slaves. And slaves and immigrants are not the same thing. I know that's Mm -hmm. obvious, but it needs to be said because that's another way in which this ideology works. You know, if, if you're a slave and you work really hard, that doesn't equal the American dream and that means you're going to succeed at the end it's a very different ideology from an immigrant one and and all that is just really sort of conflated together and or overlooked in in the show 
So we've talked a bit about a couple of contemporary musicals. Let's go back and talk about the classic phase of the musicals, the golden age of the musical in the 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe 60s, depending on where you end that. Uh, One of the things that I loved in your book, one of the details that I think I'm going to keep telling people over and over again, because I think it's just so funny, is that in 1957, uh, people were complaining that modern musicals had gotten too dark. (laughs) I think that's so great. I mean, that just sounds like something somebody would say today about, you know, looking back on 1957 and saying, man, things were sure great back then. But they were saying that in 1957 about 1927. It's a, look, it's always the case with pop culture. People say, you know, you know, in my generation, things were like so much cleaner and so much more innocent. And, and um, you know, just things always change over time um, and not realizing that in the moment, People look at often what's new, and West Side Story at that moment was so new um, in, in what it was trying to do that it felt really um, uh, off-putting to some audiences and even some critics. One of the really fascinating stories in your book is the way that West Side Story evolved over a really long development process, I think about 10 years, which you know I guess is maybe typical for musicals, but... <laughs> But maybe it was long for a musical back then. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how that show evolved and maybe, you know, what we would have seen if we'd been able to peer into that creative process two or three or five years in? Sure. And, and I, I agree. I think, um, look, I love all the books. How could I not? I'm, I'm very partial. But I am really, I really do uh, love this, that particular chapter about the Music Man and West Side Story and, and the creation of West Side Story because it's a history that a lot of people don't know, even even fans of the show. And um, the to sort of give it in a, in a nutshell, uh, what people don't know is that the show was actually going to be called East Side Story. And it was going to be about uh, Jews and Catholics uh, two warring parties fighting in the streets of the Lower East Side around the holidays of Passover and Easter uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So the the Capulets were going to be uh, Jewish and the Montagues were going to be uh, Catholic. And it's going to be a whole lot of like fights and, you know, blood and that that was that was the approach um and that is clearly not what west side story ended up being um and but what people don't know it was this was more than just an idea if we if you go back into the archives and i was really lucky at there is not just lucky i think it's I love doing archival work. It's such a treat to, I mean, I was literally holding letters and scripts and drafts from, from Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence and Jerome Robbins in my hands. And and that's just, wow, what a treasure to, to do that sort of work um, and to really sort of peek away like what they, what they were talking about and there were actually drafts of the of this early um, approach that Arthur Lawrence wrote uh, several um, in which and you get these funny lines in which like there was a there was a scene that takes place at a Passover Seder and you're thinking like where am I West Side Story with a Passover Seder like it's it's so bizarre but so delightful at the same time but what the creators realized they they kept stalling on this project for a bunch of reasons and what they they themselves kept realizing is that the story felt dated um because the thing is by the 50s jews and catholics were not fighting it out on the streets of of new york um but they couldn't figure out uh, how to what the answer was and it wasn't until uh arthur lawrence and, and leonard bernstein were sitting by the pool of the beverly hills hotel one day just talking as they were wont to do um and uh, i think it was the la times was delivered to them poolside and the title of the paper that day said something like uh like chicano mayhem breaks out in new york and re- and arthur lawrence looks at this he's like oh my gosh this is this is this is the story it's it's the story about these these new immigrant groups who are coming and 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 and, and fighting and, and gangs that are happening and they called jerry robbins right there on the spot and they sold him on it and that it's that that moment that West Side Story as we know it really sort of launches and, and they move very quickly on, on putting it into place. Wow, that's fantastic. I, East Side Story, who, who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things you point out is that many of these classic era musicals, West Side Story certainly, but also Showboat, South Pacific, uh, are in intent anti-racist musicals. They're about tolerance and acceptance. They're about how we're all human underneath, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
but many of them are also quite racist. I mean, West Side Story has problems, but not nearly to the extent that Showboat and, and South Pacific. So how did these shows fall short of their lofty goals? You know, that's a great question. And I'm going to say something here that, you know, I guess depending on your, your listeners are going to probably have like different takes on, um, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to make an apology for these shows, but, you know, I, I do feel at times that there is a flattening out of, uh, of different works from the same time period. And for an example, like, so let's talk about Showboat. Showboat has, you know, Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein had these really good intentions of showing a story about race relations in America, the, the second class status and treatment that, that black Americans uh, have continue to have. Um, but there are a lot of stereotypical uh, characters in the show and the, and the portrayal of particularly of, of, of Joe and, and Queenie who work, work on the boat. And again, at the, at the same time, at least in my mind, this showboat is not birth of a nation. Mm-hmm. And, and I say this because I'm not trying to let showboat off the hook. We should be critical of it. I mean, look, the original uh, actress who played Queenie in the original production, this, the, 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 the black uh, woman who works on, on, on the showboat um, uh, was played by uh, uh, uh Oh, uh, was played in blackface uh, and was actually the actress who also uh, did Aunt Shemima for for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no excusing that and we shouldn't excuse it. But here's what I would say in general, and that is they will they will 100 percent be if when when audiences 50 years from now, 100 years from now, assuming climate change hasn't wiped us out, look back on what's being produced right now today, they will say things about our uh, take on race and gender and identity that they will say, how could they have said that? This was so wrong. And so we, I think we have to look at shows in the context um, in which they're produced and, and give them context. You know, Turner Classic Movies recently decided to put uh, Gone with the Wind on TV, and they introduced it with, um, I, I can't remember who, uh, who it was, but uh, an African-American scholar um, gave an introduction to the movie to, to give it context and perspective, not to excuse it, not to, to give it a pass, but to to, to understand it. And I think that's the other thing. We can just sort of wipe things off and say, well, this is racist. We should put it aside. But I think we also have to learn as historians uh, how to engage with these materials to understand how do we, wh- what's the history we come from um, and how do we make it better? Another thing that you write about pretty extensively in this book is what you what you call, and I, I hadn't heard this term before, but I, I assume it's not your coinage, uh, revisals, right? Which are right. <laughs> revivals that have been revised. Um, tricky word to say for me. For some <laughs> um, and, and these kind of uh, bring up some murky ethical questions because you're, you're then presenting a work that is not actually the original work. It's been edited sometimes, you know, in just a couple of lines, like... Um, in the recent uh, carousel, they took out, I, I think, a line or two to, that were considered especially kind of jarring in a contemporary context. And other shows that have a completely new book, um, you know, like yeah. the, the Porgy and Bess that was on Broadway some time ago. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about the ethics of that? I mean, are, are is it sort of a, is it a form of posthumous collaboration? Is it a way to keep these works alive? Or is it in some way doing a kind of violence to those works? That's a terrific question, and I don't have an easy answer. I mean, you would think having lived with this material for so long, I'd be like, well, I definitely think this. And and, and I don't because there, it's a really complex question for a number of reasons. Um, so, yes, a bunch of these uh, classic shows, you know, from the 40s, 50s, 60s have been revised and, and rewritten to – a, a variety of, of, of levels. Um, to me, it is not posthumous collaboration. It is not co- collaboration when your collaborator is dead. Um, and I, look, I think one ethical question is, 
you know, what does it mean to rewrite somebody's work? Um, and, and, and to, yes, to some extent, pass it off as, as the original. I talk in the book about um, there was a revival or revisal, excuse me, a few a number of years ago, um, a flower drum song that, and David Henry Wong wrote a entirely brand new book to that show using the score from Rodgers and Hammerstein. But when I went to see the show in the theater, at least in its L.A. premiere, the show said, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song. But it wasn't. It clearly wasn't. It, it, it was this new um, interpolation of, of an interpretation of, of, of materials. So part of it is just like truth in advertising. But it does beg a bigger question, I think, about... How how are we supposed to to do with, deal with musicals um, from the past that that don't really comport with our our current day sensibilities? And that's not just with race; it's things with uh, gender and sexuality. Re- real quick, I, I saw a production not too long ago of the Pajama Game, and it, it came. This production happened right as Me Too was really like becoming big, and this is a show in which you know the the bosses is. is blatantly hitting on this the, the female factory uh, union organizer and it was really uncomfortable to watch mm-hmm. um, and and so it really begs this question like how do you even do these shows today can you do them today and I, I, I really get stuck you know I think it depends on, on on the show I do think that sometimes it is maybe just doing them in concert versions like encores does which gives us a chance to to see the work and, and hear the music um, uh, but not put it totally on its feet where either the show maybe doesn't deserve it anymore or where yeah maybe we have moved past it and I you know I've been really thinking a lot and recently about a show like Andy get your gun which was also rewritten um, uh, in a in a later revisal I think around 1999 but uh, y- you know even if you take out a song like I'm an Indian too I don't know there's just so much in that show that is just sort of uncomfortable in a whole lot of ways and I I don't know there's a part of me you know even it might be Irving Berlin and there's some great songs in it but there is a part of me that wonders like I don't know maybe like we don't really need to see Andy get your gun now. Right. And there's also a sense for me, one of the things about reviving these old problematic shows is that it just kind of perpetuates this nostalgic feeling that uh, has been, has become so uh, prevalent in Broadway that, that almost everything on Broadway is either a revival or it's an adaptation of a hit movie, or it's a review of a popular musical act. It seems like there's very little room for kind of fresh new work on Broadway. And if you're just going to, you know, resurrect this musical that already has problems and and uh, and try to patch it up and, and stand it back up again, you know, you're taking a slot that could have gone to, you know, a, a, a new work. Well, there's definitely that that's happening. And part of that is unfortunately just economic that mm-hmm. so much of Broadway nowadays is, is about selling pre, pre-packaged, but like pre-known or pre-vetted goods. And that can mean both. So in, in the new world, that means taking, again, the song books of pop musicians and writing a show about them, whether it's a bio-musical beautiful for Carol King or, or, or something that has a plot like uh, head over heels for the go-go's. And in some ways what they're selling is it doesn't matter what the show is about. It's, it's, they're saying to the audience, you know, this music, please spend your $150 on something that, you know, and that's the same philosophy behind doing revivals. That's like you, of course, you know, Oklahoma, although even this most recent version, I'd be curious to see, you know, I, the most recent version of Oklahoma was so different than anything that, that production of that show that had ever, I think been seen before that I think a lot of people who love the show walked out saying, I I don't recognize this show. And it was very jarring for them, Mm -hmm. but there's something else actually really important to be said to this issue about revivals in general, whether they're revised or not. And it's this belief that, or two beliefs. One is that musicals are these just frothy pieces of entertainment that don't really have anything meaningful to say about, our society or culture and that too we should just look beyond the books themselves the stories because really what matters is just the music they're just really pretty songs so can we just look over all that other stuff and sing the songs and and i, I hear this all the time and and yes there is something to be said for like why can't we just 
extract the songs out. Um, it, it happens a lot if they've been made into like if they're covers of them. But the thing is, what what doing that does by 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 giving a pass to let's say the stories is that it's saying that. Um, it, it's, it's looking over the ways in which race works in these shows. And this actually goes back to that, uh, that original line about how, how these shows about white identity. And, you know, white identity has a lot of its power by not talking about race, by, by, by trying to pretend that white identity is, is uh, the, the quote-unquote the norm, it's, it's the universal. Um, and so... By, by not really digging deep into what these shows are really about, it can actually continues to perpetrate any acts of systemic racism that are in these shows because it doesn't engage with them fully. It just looks at them as pretty music. And another thing that it does when you just extract the songs from their context is sort of goes against the entire philosophy of the modern musical, mm-hmm. which is that it is an integrated you know, piece of you know, like total art in a Wagnerian, Wagnerian sense that it's the plot and the and the music and the acting and the sets and the costumes all are working together to tell one coherent story. So if you say we're just going to plunk out the songs, you're 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 kind of going against the entire point of writing a musical. <laughs> no, definitely, and uh, it's. I mean, there's Wagner, of course, but you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein were really pushing the integration of of, of book and, and, and music and lyrics uh, with Oklahoma. And, you know, look, even some of their songs are still extractable because, you know, at the end of the day, um, they're a love song. People will say, you know, we're in love. It's, it's a love song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, as, as many shows have become really, really super specific, um, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine some songs ever being, like, pulled out or being uh you know doing a cover like you know some things let's say book of mormon or hamilton they're, they're so specific and you can't imagine like you know barbara streisand is not going to cover that song <laughs> yeah um so i'd love to get more specific in in one show that you write about quite extensively which is oklahoma um and you write about how this is a show that has depending on how you count either one or zero characters of color uh <laughs> if you're going to you you argue that uh we should understand Ali Hakim as essentially a Jewish character though he's named as Persian in the original show why did you feel like it was important to discuss Oklahoma with this sort of race theory frame and and what does it reveal when you look at the musical in that way well, let me start by saying I really want to give credit where credit is due to my uh, friend and, and fellow scholar, Andrea Most, who, who did really the first groundbreaking work on Oklahoma. And, and it was really her work that that uh, un- did, uncovered the, the Jewish roots of Oklahoma and, and did a lot of work around Ali Hakim uh, as, as a Jewish uh, character. So I really want to give credit uh, to her. And, and I recommend people check out her book about uh, making Americans Jews in the Broadway uh, musical, which is really also fascinating and, and also looks at things around race and ethnicity. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of other stuff that's happening in Oklahoma beyond that maybe crypto-Jewish character, which is, is that, you know, I, I was always thinking about like the title of the show. The title of the show is Oklahoma. And, you know, I, I, you ask people like, like, what, like, what is that? It's the name of the state, but like, where does it come from? And it's this Choctaw word that means red people. And what people <laughs> don't, I mean, there's all these fascinating contradictions about the show where, you know, I, I, when I, when I go into classrooms or things, I say to ask people say, so where does Oklahoma take place? And they think it's this trick question. They say it's, it takes place in Oklahoma. And I say, it doesn't. And, and this is, it's not a trick question. If you open the very libretto, mm-hmm. uh, at the very beginning, Oscar Hammerstein writes, Oklahoma, the musical Oklahoma takes place in Indian territory. And if we remember how the show works, at the very end, when they sing Oklahoma, it's at the moment in which this uh, parcel of land, this territory, excuse me, is going to become a state. And so it begs this question, if this is Indian territory, where are the where are the Native Americans? You know, where are they? And look, also there's this whole history of Oklahoma is based on Green Grow the Lilacs by Lynn Riggs, who was a part Native American playwright. Um, so the show itself actually has this Native American 
uh, heritage, lineage that never manifests itself. And again, this is a great example of the ways in which even though there might not be any people of color on stage or even discussed, that it's a still a show about race. Um, and, and that the, when, and when the characters talk about threats out there about that, that are, that are confronting the cowboys and the farmers, who are those, who are the threats? Um, that I think they are conceived to be native Americans and that like by coming together as this white community, um, where there are no fights between cowboys and, and farmers as they sing in the car, the farmer and the cowboy should be friends. Um, that it, it, it shows the ways in which it's very much a show about whiteness. Is there, is it going too far to say that the character of Judd Fry represents a sort of quasi white uh, figure who is ultimately punished for failing to conform to the demands of white society? I'm not sure about that. I, I mean, uh, Andrea most, again, in, in her book and her work reads Judd as, as a, as a black figure for a whole bunch of uh, mm. uh, reasons. Um, uh, and I, and I'm less sure what, to, what to do with him as, as a, as a, as a figure. Cause uh, I mean, look, on one hand, he's this outsider to the community. Um, he's not, he's not explicitly um, a racial outsider, um, but there is something about him that's definitely other. Um, definitely his, his sexual proclivities um, definitely make him a suspect. Yeah. Um, some people who study these old musicals say that we should study them for their craft um, rather than for their sort of content. <laughs> uh, they should do a sort of formal analysis and kind of understand what we can learn from them in terms of their structure and kind of how they, the, the mechanics of how they work. Do you think that's a viable way to study these musicals? Or do you think form and content are so integrated in these that it's really impossible to separate the two? I think it, I personally think it's totally impossible to separate the two, especially anything from Oklahoma on. Uh, what they're trying to do is, is, is to seamlessly meld these these things together. You know, in, in much earlier shows where it, it literally it was very much um, uh, uh, almost like a, not cardboard cutouts, but. Uh, uh, almost like a paint by numbers thing. It's like, well, the curtain went up. There were a lot of chorus girls kicking up their heels and, you know, and then there's a funny song and a, and a, and a, and a love song and you could put them in any show and it didn't matter. You know, I think some of those shows you can maybe separate out a little bit. The, the form and the, the content really wasn't working together, but later shows, I think they're, I think they're very well together. And, and I think, again, it does a disservice to, to just to say that the content that doesn't matter because we always have to remember it doesn't matter what it is, whether it is a song, a book, a musical, a, a, a piece of visual art. Artists are creating works of art based on the world around them. Nothing is created in a vacuum. And and to, and to say that that things like race and gender, or sexuality or social class, or any of those things don't matter um, in these shows, it, it just isn't true. Another big theme that you touch on in your book is casting um, and, and especially casting for kind of old musicals that have been revived. And you, you write about an all black production of Hello, Dolly, starring Pearl Bailey and Cab Calloway that was quite controversial uh, when it was originally on Broadway, I think, in the late 60s. Why was it so controversial at the time? So it wasn't the first um, all black production of, of a musical uh, or I say an all black production of a traditionally white musical. There had been black musicals before, um, uh, written by, uh, uh, by creators of color. Uh, but this was, this was a, a moment in which I think it was 67 when, uh, David Merrick, the hit producer of Hello Dolly, which had won all of these Tony awards. It was a huge success, you know, wanted to basically pump some more box office, dollars into this show and and came up with this idea that that let's let's cast it with an all-black cast with with pearl bailey in the lead and cab calloway um as uh as the as the male lead and um you know there were there were folks who were asking you know is this is this a type of uh and everything from of, of minstrelsy people asked some of the, the critics were asking um ultimately people loved the show the show had these huge box office records and critics loved it um but there was a sense of it didn't it just it just didn't feel right to some people um 
you know, there were also questions about, you know, was it, uh, you know, in some ways like reinforcing segregation in some ways. This was not a mixed cast, but there were real hesitations about doing uh, an integrated cast at this time. Um because people, you know, what would it mean to have uh, an integrated cast that would be kissing on stage? I mean, these were not small issues at this moment. It's now become pretty common to cast historically white shows with some diversity, often in kind of chorus parts or smaller parts. Uh, for example, the most recent revival of Sunday in the Park with George featured African-American and Asian-American actors. Do you view this as a step in the right direction or does it just kind of further reify the idea that whiteness is the default by having non-white actors playing white characters? I mean, in general, I think it's the move in the right direction that we should find as many opportunities as we can to diversify the cast in, in, in shows. And I, here's what, I mean, there's a couple of things here. I mean, first, I do believe to, to further that, I feel very strongly that the diversity should come in the lead characters as well, and not just in supporting characters or in the chorus. That That's really important. That's, and that's, that's often going to be an easy fix. But I think the tension becomes, and this is something that I continue to grapple with in, in this new edition and now beyond, even after the book is published, is trying to, again to think about, you know, how do we make more opportunities for actors of color, um, especially in, in, in older shows, but also trying to just realize that, well, history is still a thing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I give this example, and this was actually new to this this edition. I uh, After the first book was published, the edition was published, I I saw an all-Black production of Kiss Me, Kate in uh, at the Pasadena Playhouse. And uh, for the most part, this all-Black production work, the, the, the idea was they were all-Black theater companies in the 19... 19- 40s and 50s so why couldn't this be an all-black troupe sure that works well but it's 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 as if the director the creative team didn't like think ahead to act two in which the leading lady is having a love affair with i think he's like the i don't know i can't remember what it is the like a senator uh, or something uh, no more than a senator like the head of the defense department i don't know what it is um and in this production uh, it was played by this act. This character is played by a, uh, a white actor, and he says lines like to to Lily, the this case a black actress, "You and I are going to be president and and first lady of the U.S. and we're going, you know, and and you know it's going to be great and whatever he yeah. says." And, and I'm looking at this. I'm saying, what? What what world did this would this take in? Where like the forties are gonna have a a a, a, a black and a white black couple, first lady, yeah. a black first lady. Like <laughs> it was huge when Obama became the first black president, and that was like that was a that was a hard road to get there. So mm-hmm. it, it this is why again race is built into this show even when it's never even articulated. Mm. So yeah, I guess that leads to another question, which is like. Do you have a kind of casting utopia that you you hope that we'll get to at some point? I mean, you know, I, I assume it's not the sort of uh, colorblind casting thing where you just cast anybody with the quote unquote best actor. But what do what are you kind of uh, working towards? You know, it's, it's a great question. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently. Um, you know, look, on one hand, in the in the in the short term, it really is about making sure that uh, that actors of color have more opportunities for roles, uh, and that means both uh, being considered fully for roles that might typically be uh, 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 played by white actors uh, in in contexts that are maybe are not like Kiss Me Kate, where it would bring mm-hmm. up all of these wonky historical questions about race um uh as well as making sure that that characters that are explicitly conceived of uh as being for uh, a person of color are actually played by a person of color um but i actually think um that there could be a time in the future where actually all this goes out the window and it's not just colorblind casting that we're talking about but something much more maybe, I don't know, utopian is the word, but where all markers of identity, gender, race, ethnicity, um, sexuality, uh, disability, uh, go out the window 
And we really just cast just it, it would be a world in which we really did just cast for the right performer in, 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 the, in the role, but it would have to be really a mindset in which there really was an equal playing field. And that would look very, very uh, uh, different than what we have now. Um, and there have been some, uh, I know there have been some plays, I mean, like, look, you'll see Shakespeare now where you'll have, you know, uh, uh, women playing some of the lead Shakespearean uh, male roles. So that's, that's being done. And, um, uh, uh, th- there's been work, uh, uh, you know, some people have talked about how, you know, in a work like Shakespeare, it, it feels so far from our current day present moment in which we can play around with the casting because it almost, it, the, the language of Shakespeare almost feels like we're on a, another planet, mm-hmm. but we're still so close to the world of musical theater. It still feels like, even the 20th century, it still feels pretty close that it's sort of hard to, to, to pull those things apart, but maybe like a hundred years from now, it'll feel like, you know, the world of Oklahoma or kiss me, Kate, it's going to feel so different that yeah, it won't matter who's playing those roles, but we're, we're not there yet. It sometimes seems like in some of these conversations, white theater artists and theater artists of color are kind of talking past each other in, in that white people are always talking about diversity, whereas what people of color are often talking about is equity, which is a very different thing. Do you think that's part of the, the kind of conflict here in, in terms of uh, the ways that it seems like it's, it's so difficult for white casting directors and white artistic directors and white directors to understand why putting a black actor in the chorus and making a black actor a lead are actually two really, really different things? I, I, I think so. I think it's also, and again, I'm not trying to excuse this, but I think sometimes there are, you know, you know, as speaking as a white person and I see the world, look, I, I have to be honest. I see the world from a white perspective because that's how I was raised. And so at times, you know, I think it puts blinders on us and we sometimes forget to consider other things. A quick example, I uh, I wrote a play once um, and I uh, I guess in my head, and there was a character based on a sort of real life uh, person um, who was white. And so when I, we went to casting, I thought, oh, this will be a white actor. And, and then uh, an actor of color walked in uh, and he was phenomenal. And, and we cast him because it, because it just made the right sense. There's nothing in mm-hmm. my script that said it couldn't be with an actor of, of color. Um, and I was excited to give uh, uh, another opportunity uh, to, to, to this, uh, to this individual. Um, but it was my own blinders that couldn't see that, why was I only thinking in this way? So yes, it has to be it has to be incumbent on the director and casting director and and other folks to say like how how can we really sort of take a step back and, and, and really try to maximize what the opportunities are here? Well, Warren Hoffman, thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts. I really enjoyed your book, The Great White Way: Race and the Broadway Musical. Thanks, Andy. It was great uh, talking with you. And I hope uh, people check the book out. It's on uh, Amazon and lots of other places where you can buy books, including at independent bookstores. So uh, I hope other musical fans read it. Can I ask you one more question before you go? Of course. Uh, Do you have any other projects in the work that you'd like us to know about? Uh... Not the not theatrical related. Uh, 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 tr- trying my hand at, at at the world of the novel, so we'll see where that takes us. But well, best as, of luck. <laughs> aside aside from that, uh, no, nothing else on the theatrical front at the moment. Well, thanks again so much for being on the program, Warren. It was really lovely to have you. Thanks for having me. <laughs>